Hare Krishna, Krishna Hitra Maharaj. Thank you very Hare much Krishna. for joining here today. It's uh, my pleasure to be with you again. I've got a lot of positive feedback from devotees about our last podcast, especially oh. the point that you know faith doesn't have to require the elimination of doubt, but they can have been a constant dialogue. In fact, I gave that yes. title itself to the podcast, but that was a illuminating point. Many devotees said that we had never heard of it. And <laughs> that was brilliant. Well, I'm I'm waiting for when when do I get in trouble for that? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, I think uh, uh, maybe we have as a movement graduated past that stage where maybe 10, 15 years ago, this would have yeah. been a scandalous statement. But now Big I trouble, think yeah. <laughs> as a movement, we have we recognized the somewhat broader horizons. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yes, Maharaj, thank you. So Maharaj, today I was thinking of discussing on the topic of uh, using our imagination in Krishna's service. Yes. You know, mm. I got this inspiration from two ways. One was, no, I'll tell both and then I can, we can move forward. In my childhood, I had read a Ramayana and I had liked it very much. And then recently I revisited it and I wrote the, read the author's preface. And there the author writes, now the author is known to be not a, not a Iskon devotee, but a Krishna Bhakta. So, about a Vishnu Bhakta. So he had written that in this book, with all the devotion of my heart, I offer to Krish, offer to Ram uh, all the imagination he has given me. Hmm. So that was a very striking usage for me. That normally we think of imagination as something you know we don't we want ima- don't want imaginary things, but right. is using the imagination service. That was a very striking phrase. And then I also remember that you have authored or encouraged devotees to write for a series of smaranam books. Where yes. there is some amount of visualization of Krishna's pastime, especially those pastimes that speak to us. Yes. So then I thought these are two backgrounds to stimuli for having this discussion. Yes. Yes, Maharaj. So maybe you can speak on this topic and especially how you felt inspired to do this Sparanam book, series of books. Okay. Uh, yeah, let's, let's start with how, how these books started. And... Um, I might as well sort of show one of them. This was uh, the first volume that we did some years back. Uh, it's called Krishna Smaranam, uh, Krishna Smarana, and then subtitle is Devotees' Creative Monologues Elaborating Krishna's Pastimes. Mm. This is available, by the way, on uh, Amazon Kindle. Okay for free, uh, can oh. be downloaded. If you just search Krishna Smarana, you'll find this one. And we did three altogether, uh, Krishna Smarana, Rama Smarana, and Gora Smarana. And I'll explain later what we're working on now. The Rama Smarana, just now I checked, it's not available online. Uh, but this Krishna Smarna and Gora Smarna are both available on Kindle. So, yeah, this was back in, which year was it? Uh, 2010. 
we had this summer camp retreat in Serbia, uh, in Southeast Europe. And I was, uh, we were discussing different pastimes of Krishna after killing Kamsa. Hmm. And I was thinking how to engage the devotees in really thinking more deeply about the pastimes. And I was encouraging devotees to write uh, a sort of monologue. And I suggested uh, take some minor character, you know, someone who is perhaps on the sidelines who somehow or other is observing. And what would they see? What would they experience? What would they think? And so on. So the devotees, they all kind of stared at me with blank looks. (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) And I thought, okay, there's no use in just asking them to do something. I need to show an example. So that that same evening, uh, I in my room, I had an idea and I put it on computer. Um, I was thinking about the story of uh, Krishna's wedding with Rukmini and how uh, the how Rukmini Devi sends this Brahmin uh, to, uh, with a message to Krishna. And I thought, okay, here we have something. The Brahmin. I don't think we get a name of this Brahmin Mm. in the uh, Bhagavatam. Um, He's journeying by himself to see Krishna. Presumably, he's never met Krishna before. What is he thinking on his way to meeting Krishna? Mm. So I... I imagined, you know, what would one think (laughs) in anticipation of uh, going to Dvaraka and seeing Krishna? And I made as a a kind of, how to say, a formal uh, restriction for myself. Every sentence in this little piece, which is just a couple of pages, or I don't remember, less maybe, uh, every sentence is in the form of a question. Um, and so he's kind of asking questions of himself and he's anticipating. Uh, and so, um, so then I brought that the next day to the seminar. I read it out. And then devotees were, oh, okay, yeah, I kind of get it now. I could do maybe something like this. <laughs> so questions means, is he asking, okay, how will Krishna receive me? What will Krishna look like? What will Krishna's palace yeah. look like? Something like that? Yeah, things like that. But also, I, it's been a while since I've yeah. looked at it myself. But also, um, maybe reflections on himself. Who am I to be qualified to, to go see Krishna and so on? Um, yeah. But that's just, you know, that was just my particular idea for this particular writing. Uh, it's by no means anything like now we should all write everything in form of questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So that was the first inspiration, uh, and um, then 
I made some uh, specifications. I think I said, uh, please, uh, you know, don't write more than X number of words. We don't want it to be too long. And uh, most of those who are who participated in these, English is not uh, their first language. And so uh, we did some English editing at the same time in my introduction, I say, please don't mind. Sometimes the English may be a bit awkward. So the idea was just to get, get devotees, well, you know, first of all, get devotees reading. Because I, I, I strongly feel there's, there's a difference between active reading and passive reading. Uh, where active reading means you're you're looking for something and you're you're reading with the idea of one way or another passing on what you read uh, there's shravanam and then there's kirtanam so as we read if we think about what it is we read in terms of how would i communicate this to someone else immediately becomes active, it becomes, uh, becomes interesting. <laughs> but as far as imagination goes, I want to read, I put this in the introduction to this uh, first book, a quote from Srila Prabhupada. This was in a lecture on June 1st, 1974 in Geneva on Srimad Bhagavatam 1.13.10. Um, Prabhupada said, you can imagine that, quote, in my heart I have placed now a very diamond throne and Krishna is sitting, unquote. That is accepted. It is, actually, it becomes. Even within the mind, you think that, quote, I have kept one diamond throne, very costly throne, because Krishna is coming. He will sit down here, unquote. That is not false. That is a fact. So you create some situation within your heart. Quote, now Krishna has seated. Let me wash his feet with the Ganges water, Yamuna water. So, of course, Prabhupada here is describing a very standard aspect of Archana called Manasa Puja or Manasika Puja. Uh, and it's a standard uh, step in the full practice of Archana that you, you first meditate on offering uh, the Upacharas, the different items. And uh, I've always found this uh, potentially, I've always found it a, a wonderful aspect of Archana because in one sense, there, there's no limit to uh, what you can bring to Krishna in that meditation. We always have a problem in uh, Western Northern countries, uh, lack of flowers, or even if we have flowers, they hardly ever smell, and mm. flowers are very expensive. But uh, with Manasa Puja, you can offer 
heaps and heaps of, you know, wonderful uh, fragrant flowers like you have there in India most of the year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's and, and of course you can uh, offer a whole feast, you know, chapa and boga, and you can, you can make a, a procession with elephant. I mean, there's, you know, there's no limit. You can, uh, it, it can be quite some fun, actually. So the point I want to make here is just, um, Prabhupada is suggesting, he uses the word imagine. And then he says, uh, imagine what? Imagine a, a diamond throne in your heart. And then he says, it is not false. <laughs> it becomes, Prabhupada says, yeah, that's, that's true. I can, yeah. <laughs> it is not false. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and, and so, so that, led me, that led me to think, because I'm a little bit anticipating uh, maybe one question that uh, may come up is, um, you know, sort of where do you draw the line? But also, when we read some uh, things that our acharyas have written, um, yes. when we when we read um, Srila Jiva Goswami's Maharaj, Gopal Champa, one minute, you know, just about this quote, if you don't mind, you know, we can go to that a little later. So, okay. to Manas Puja. Uh, there are certain things which are say traditional and it's understood say like we would like to decorate Krishna on a, with beautiful jewels or ornaments or place him on a wonderful throne so that is something yes. which we would like to do in real life and if we can't do it in real life at least do it in the heart hmm? so yes. we have precedents for that say for example when I think Vasudev couldn't give charity on the birth of Krishna at that time uh -huh. he gave charity mentally and later on he gave yes. practically. So yes. that is, in one sense, imagining what we would like to do for Krishna. Uh, so yeah. now different from that is maybe imagining what Krishna is doing or imagining mm. what uh, or how things were when 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 Krishna was performing a particular pastime. So yeah. the, fir the first has many precedents, but the second is what I think you are going towards. But I've just thought of just clarifying the yeah. difference between the two. Because one, I don't yeah. think it will be ever controversial. But the second mm. is where some issues might come up, where we are, can we actually not imagine, maybe imagine is a slightly provocative word, visualize what uh, yeah. What Krishna is doing. So yeah. you are saying something about some of our acharyas pastimes. You can continue that. Yeah. So one thing that comes in uh, to the subject, of course, is the idea of adhikar. Uh, who who has qualification? Uh, we may say who has qualification to imagine. <laughs> and uh, we may look. I mentioned Jiva Goswami, um, Sanatana Goswami, in, with his Brihad Bhagavatamrita. And we look at this and we say, okay, these are our very exalted acharyas. They are uh, eternal associates of the Lord. And so what they're describing is not something they're just imagining. It's something they're visualizing. 
it's something they see it's it's like uh, we we get the idea you know maybe they are uh, getting transcendental television reception like sanjaya uh, from the battlefield of kurukshetra something like that yes that may be the case or um and i'm just i'm thinking aloud here a little bit i was reflecting on this this morning that um in advanced spiritual life the advanced devotees krishna is reciprocating with the desire of the devotee uh, and and what this suggests to me is we we may be able to go a step further with the idea of an acharya's imagination is such that it becomes reality and this uh goes back to what Prabhupada is saying, imagine a diamond throne. It is not false. Um, <laughs> it, is, uh, it becomes a reality. Mm-hmm. And then the, 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 fa- the famous example Prabhupada uh, so much liked to tell, which is referred to in Bhakti Rasamrita, Sindhu, Nectar yeah. Devotion, uh, of uh, the devotee who's doing this Manasapuja, He's testing the sweet rice uh, to see if it's cooled down. It's not cooled down. He burns his finger, and indeed, his finger is actually burnt. So there's this crossover between imagination and reality that seems to happen when uh, there's very high adhikar, and Krishna wants that to happen once. Uh, allows allows it to happen by yeah by the will of the devotee so we often say oh that's just imagination but at some point in a devotional life uh, it's not just imagination <laughs> it's something more than that so, so just to clarify this when you are saying that the two distinct explanations you gave one is that something is already happening and a devotee visu- devotee basically sees it like tunes into a uh, television tunes into a radio or a television and the other yeah. is when a devotee is imagining then krishna makes it happen krishna makes it a reality is that the yeah. two things you are saying so yes so, yeah so in the second thing and krishna makes it a reality uh, are you saying that krishna performs that pastime say in the devotee's heart or actually Krishna manifests all those details in a particular universe where he's, uh, he's doing those Who things? Who knows? Okay. <laughs> See, this, this gets to uh, a point which in the academic study of religion comes up, that there are basically two major camps uh, of theorizing about uh, religion, what it is. Uh, one we may call the receptionist uh, understanding, and the other is the projectionist understanding. Okay. Uh, the receptionists say there is some transcendent reality, um, and that 
transcendent reality is being communicated to human beings, to certain human beings, uh, special being humans, whatever. But it is something out there or okay. someone, and that's being received. And mm -hmm. then uh, the other camp says, no, 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 you're, you're, you're too religious. <laughs> What's really happening is that people uh, with fertile, fertile imaginations are projecting what's going on in the, just in their heads out into the world. And that becomes religion. What it seems to me, Vaishnavism, what we understand is there is very much a transcendent reality mm -hmm. which is being received and it's also as it's being received it's awakening in the heart and then the heart is being activated and that leads to yes a certain projection becomes the wrong word but it's something like projection but what it is, is uh, it's kirtan, it's glorification. Mm. And that glorification is um, expanding the glories, right? Because the, the Lord is unlimited, his pastimes are unlimited, and they are happening as we speak. And part of how they're happening is that we participate in them. Uh, I always remember uh, His Holiness Lokanath Swami in, in a Bhagavatam lecture talking about how uh, we practice uh, hearing and picturing uh, Krishna's pastimes. And in the course of practice, as we become more and more practiced, at one point, he put it this way, he said at one point, you may notice a gap in the pastime in which you belong. That's where you fit. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> and, and that's when you enter into the pastime. <laughs> okay, that's striking. Uh, just going back to this receptionist and projectionist. So yeah. I thought that uh, the general academic study of religion is, is, is usually more skeptical, but still within that also there are these two ideas. I thought most of the times it is people think that there is nothing transcendental and it is more of a sociological or psychological kind of phenomena which we analyze. Um, well, there, I would say there are two major uh, sorts of, of scholars of religion, but this is also overgeneralizing. Um, but um, there are scholars who tend to be reductionists. They want to say uh, this is uh, nothing more than uh, a phenomenon which can be understood through uh, sociology, psychology, um, 
politics, economics, and so on. And there are those who say, all those things are there and we can study them, that's fine. And we can see how they may indeed have influence on uh, people uh, doing what we may call religious practice. And there's something more. And that something more is something which uh, you can never reduce. Uh, one, one scholar from pre the previous generation at Harvard, uh, Wilfred Cantwell Smith, made this point. There's, there's two things. He said there's what he called cumulative tradition, which is all the things that are visible, maybe measurable, which are um, phenomenon that scholars can look at. And there is, um, there is the reality, he insisted, this is a reality, which is the faith uh, of, of people, the, the faith in the heart. And he said, that's something that we as scholars will never access. We can, we can listen to what they say about their faith, and we can listen uh, we can read their writings, et cetera, et cetera. We can hear their singing, um, analyze their architecture and their painting and on and on. Uh, but you can never get to that thing in itself, that faith. Therefore, he wanted to insist that uh, religion is something to take seriously. Um, as a human phenomenon, he says, we... We don't have to argue about whether or not what is being believed in exists or not. That's not our business as scholars of religion. That's for theologians to discuss. Uh, so academic study of religion, of course, <laughs> Bhakti Siddhanta Thakur would call this uh, probably, you know, licking, uh, trying to lick the honey from the outside of yeah. the bottle. Uh, but it's um, it's a sophisticated field. It, it's it's um, you know there's a lot of um, engaging uh, discussion, which I think can also be enriching for devotees, some devotees, to engage with, to reflect on. Yes, ma'am. That's another subject. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but thank you for so. You mentioned about this, we can't know faith. I think I read in Tamal Krishna Maharaj's one of his books that he says, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. Yeah. So, something similar to knowing about the expressions of the faith and knowing that or experiencing that faith itself. Yeah. So yeah. now... And there are scholars of religion. There are, there are highly religious scholars of religion. Uh, and uh, they will, um, they can function in both worlds, so to say. Mm. Yeah. I think you are a vibrant example of that yourself. Isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, going, going back to our point that, so you were mentioning that in our tradition, we could say it's a combination of both uh, both, uh, or what was it? Uh, not projection, that was reception. Reception. 
and then maybe yeah. you could say glorification or expression not projection but right yes ma'am yeah so then yeah. Now, just going back to those that example of gopal champu you know as thinking of say three levels of description of krishna leela or the lord's pastimes one is say we have the bhagavatam which is we understand shukadev goswami at least at some level describing what has happened in the 10th canto then we have yeah. gopal champu or some of gopal champu especially we could consider and then we have some of the things which are explicitly written with the name natakas dramas we have say yes. chaitanya chandrodaya natak or some uh, i think some dramas so now that are the dramas are also considered to be say of the first level or second level or are they considered to be dramas to be enacted what has been the attitude of the tradition toward these oh that that in itself becomes a huge topic because uh as we know uh shila rupa goswami in particular and then uh also uh uh kavi karnapura yes. um were both writing dramas you mentioned the one from kavi karnapura chetani yeah. chandradai nataka um and they're writing these dramas within um a very rich tradition of theorizing on the nature of uh poetry and drama of sanskrit poetry and drama which goes back to uh uh the uh the work of bharat uh, the uh, bharat shastra uh natya shastra yeah. yeah and and then out of that there there are branches and sub branches of theorizing and uh, and arguing back and forth <laughs> and then we come to uh rupa goswami who then uh transcendentalizes the whole discussion um uh, by saying that the essence or the the core the core of rasa is bhakti bhakti rasa and kavikarnapura uh agrees with this they didn't they didn't uh collaborate they were in different parts of india um but they they're both saying the same thing and they both wrote uh short manuals i was trying to remember the name of the manuals uh on poetics on on the rules of sanskrit poetics as they are chandrika rupa goswami is natak chandrika i think hari parshit yes that's it yeah yeah natak chandrika and um i think it's tamal krishna goswami who explains uh, that in natak chandrika rupa goswami says that for the purpose of establishing rasa for bringing out for uh highlighting a particular rasa in a particular narrative it is permissible to make some changes from uh, the shastric source whether it's bhagavatam or mahabharata or whatever and kavikarnapura does this in a very interesting way i've just been reading 
uh, this wonderful, elaborate uh, analysis of Kavikarnapura. Um, I have his book here somewhere I can show uh, from uh, Gopinathacharya Prabhu. Yeah. yeah. And he says, he explains toward the end of his book that Kavikarnapura does something interesting with uh, the Bhagavatam's description of Rasa Lila in order to highlight uh, the uh, Shimati Radharani's feelings of compassion. <laughs> and I, I won't go into the details, but uh, he, he makes a definite shift in the story in order to bring this out. And someone might say, oh, how dare he? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, he's Kavikarnapura, and furthermore, he's doing what is uh, allowed in the tradition for the purpose that he's doing it, which is highlighting this rasa, in this case of compassion, to go with Madhurya. Um, so, in terms of these three categories you mentioned, that's, that's not in his drama, that's in his champu, the Ananda Vrindavan champu. Okay. So, um, yes, there's these three genres you mentioned, but um, whether, whether you can make the same distinctions of degree of reality or something to fit each of those i don't know if that'll work oh yes i think in the anandavan champu when i read it also it struck me that he analyzes radharani's uh, radharani asks krishna to stop because he says she's concerned about the other gopis and yes is that what you're referring to about her yes yeah, so yeah that, basically so, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So that is not mentioned in the Bhagavatam specifically at all. But right. Yeah. So that's, I found it a very inspiring uh, point. And when we speak it also, it, it makes that transcendental pastime so accessible and relishable at our level also. That even yeah. while being with Krishna, Radharani is concerned about other gopis, <laughs> not just exactly. about Krishna herself. Yeah. Yes. That's it. So, so he's saying, what, what is Gopinath Charitra saying that this is what Rupa Gos, what uh, Kavikarnapur has, has done a distinctive shift in emphasis. Is that? Yeah, he, he highlights, he highlights that. Yeah. Now, I think another, um, another aspect of this we can uh, reflect on uh, is from Chaitanya Charitamrita. Uh, as we know, uh, poets would write poetry inspired by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and they would bring it, they wanted to recite it uh, to Lord Chaitanya, but they had to go through uh, Saurabh Damodar. Yes. And he, he was the gatekeeper. Hmm. And there's at least one story where he, he throws out you know, one applicant <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> because he gets the rasa wrong. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, just a minute, Maharaj. Is it a rasa wrong or it's almost a siddhanta wrong? 
because I think yeah, he got the Siddhanta wrong. Like, and with that of course there are with that he probably got the rasa wrong too. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Anyway, um so there's a couple of things here. One is and this comes from some forget the name but one uh, respected historian of Bengal of the uh historian of Bengali literature who points out that there was a huge explosion uh, of literary activity uh, with uh, the advent of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, with his movement. There's, there's almost a major, you know, beginning point of a, of a major uh, type of activity in Bengal, of uh, literary activity in Bengal, inspired by Lord Chaitanya and his associates suggesting to me that uh, it's integral specifically to our tradition uh, that there be uh, literary activity and creative literary activity. Which uh, activity this scholar mentioned? Means which literary activity ex arose because of logic? Yeah, the writing of songs, the writing of poetry, the writings of drama, Oh, okay. In Bengali language. Okay. That's interesting. In Chaitanya Charitamrita also, one of the qualities of Vaishnava is mentioned as a Kavi. Kavi. That's also in Bhagavatam. So, and the other point is that um, <clears throat> that Sarudamadar represents, he sort of embodies the uh, a tradition which we see in modern secular culture, and that is of the review process. Mm. Now, in the academic world, if you want to get a, um, an article published in an academic journal, it goes through what's called peer review. Uh, there will be one or two anonymous scholars who are qualified in the field and so on. So that's a, a, a sort of self-regulating system. In, in, the, um, in the general sphere of publishing, uh, you have book reviews which are published in magazines and newspapers. And, you know, there's the uh, New York Times review of books. There's the London uh, Times, I guess, review of books. And people take those reviews very seriously and decide whether or not they're going to buy this or that book based on those reviews. And the review can be anything. It can be pra praising a book like anything, or it can be, you know, completely yeah. smashing the book. Yeah. Um, that's the system. So... There's, there's a culture there which I think would also be uh, of value within the society of Vaishnavas. What I mean by that, years ago, quite some decades ago, there was concern um, in the GBC 
that um, devotees are writing books and they're publishing them themselves and, you know, all kinds of things are getting out there. This should all be controlled. And so they set up a review system. But it, it failed miserably because it was way too slow. It just became a bottleneck. Mm. And in the end, um, devotees said, hey, I don't care whether I'm approved by the GBC or not. <laughs> I'm going to publish my book. <laughs> so that was, you know, very quickly abandoned, that whole concept. Uh, but, mm, and now what we have is, uh, in a sense, completely unregulated. Um, by which I mean we don't have any self-regulation, which is unfortunate. In one sense, it's unfortunate because what, uh, re what the reviewing culture provides, it educates readers to be more discriminating of what is good writing, uh, what's good, um, yeah, what is good writing, what's good publishing, and it educates authors uh, to be more self-critical mm. so that we get more, uh, more quality of publications, which then in turn will be taken more seriously uh, by a wider public. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's it's tough, you know, at one time when I was asked to be a part of review for some books and it becomes not just time consuming from us to read, but you have to yeah. actually communicate with that person. And often if that person is much more senior to us, then how yeah, they will yeah. take it. It's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. In, I think in the Catholic tradition, they had something called imprimator. That this book doesn't contain any objectionable theology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what the GBC was trying to do, but that fell flat. So, um, and I don't think that's what we want. Yeah, it's tough. I think we, I think we want uh, more, more of an open culture. Um, we want to encourage, Prabhupada encouraged, actually Prabhupada more than once said, all my all my students, all my, all the devotees should write. <laughs> yes. So of course, writing is just one one sort of creativity. It's yeah. it's it's one that I'm trying to encourage. Um, we see a lot of music creativity, a lot of uh, uh, graphic arts creativity. Yes. And uh, what else? Even architectural yeah. depiction also, a lot of creativity yeah. in that. Yeah, I think personally, I think there could also be more, more creativity in uh, clothing design for deities. Um, that could be controversial, but I think <laughs> there could be some very much more... Uh, I mean, there's nice, wonderful clothes, but I think there could be uh, more interesting things done as well. And we have clothes designers amongst devotees. Oh, okay. 
<laughs> the first thought that came in my mind was, I think several years ago in one of the Vrindavan temples, they had dressed Krishna in t-shirt and, uh, and jeans. And that, <laughs> <laughs> that created an outrage and there was protest. Yeah. And then the Pujari was, I think Pujari had to leave or something like that. So <laughs> there, maybe there again also the, some limits might be required. And time, according time, place, circumstance also. But Maharaj, your point is uh, significant that somehow the amount of reservations that we have with respect to using creativity in, in words, that seems to be much more than with respect to music or graphic arts or architecture. Yeah. So is it because uh, the word is considered more, more authoritative? Or is it, is there any other reason for that? Authoritative and also there's something very fixed about words in print. Um, and um, I mean, the, the ambivalent, the sense of ambivalence to the printed word or just the written word uh, in the West, it goes back to Plato, who who wrote books, <laughs> but he, he expressed ambivalence that once you write it down, it's fixed uh, and whoever reads it, they're gonna, they're gonna misunderstand for sure. <laughs> and then within the uh, Vedic and we can say uh, broader um, tradition from Veda, uh, there's also ambivalence. Uh, the, you know, the Veda, was not written down, it was heard and, and memorized. And only when we get to Mahabharata, the epics, Mahabharata, Ramayana, and then the Puranas. And with the Puranas, it's also problematic because the mode of uh, communication of Purana in particular is oral. Uh, the, the Bhagavatam is telling of, you know, a layering of several oral uh, recitations and, and speaking of the Bhagavatam. And um, with each retelling, something changes, but it's understood it becomes more enriched uh, if the person speaking is qualified. And that's the whole understanding of why do we have Bhagavatam classes? It's a retelling <laughs> of the Bhagavatam by the speaker. Um, so the written word has, in a sense, always been problematic. And um, I shouldn't say this, but uh, you know, we have quite an issue in our society about the editing of Srila Prabhupada's books. Yes, and I'm right in the midst of that because I'm part of a, a panel to review the editing, um, and in, in a sense, I feel like this problem wouldn't be there if uh, we had just kept, um, if we had just been able to keep at the time all the tape recordings of Srila Prabhupada <laughs> because Prabhupada did not write books except for Bhagavad Gita and um, 
uh, easy journey to other planets. He didn't actually write books. He spoke. <laughs> and there's a world of difference. There's a world of difference between speaking and a written word. And we're struggling uh, with that gap. So you are saying that means if Prabhupada's audio recordings of his Bhagavatam purports and CC purports, it would have been, it might have been better if they had been kept like that rather than published as books at all. Uh, no, I'm not saying that because Prabhupada wanted books. <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm, I'm saying it would have been nice to have uh, as resources, if nothing else, for this process of editing. Um, uh, because uh, so many I mean, of them are multiple lost. issues. So many of Most them of them are lost. Oh. Most of them, because the way Prabhupada did it, he would record a tape, and these were these reel-to-reel -reel tapes. He would hand it to, say, His Holiness Sat Satsurup Daskaswami, who would then type the tape. Um, and then that uh, tape would go back to Srila Prabhupada, who would then record over what he had recorded previously, because they only had a handful of these tapes. My God, that's... The only tapes we have, original, are for Krishna book. Oh. Somehow for Krishna book, they were saved. Yeah, I, I've heard them also. Prabhupada says comma and full stop and Prabhupada's transcription. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, now, so regarding the using of imagination so you said that in each retelling of the bhagavatam it becomes richer and that's why we also have bhagavatam classes so at uh, mm. you know with respect to retelling so there are times when prabhupada also uh, takes some creative license so for example prabhupada would say prabhupada would quote sarvadharma and parityaji and he says krishna is telling give up all your nonsense and just surrender right. to me. <laughs> now, <laughs> Sarva Dharmat Parityaja and give up all your nonsense. They're not really it. <laughs> yeah. So, so in that sense. Yeah, because, yeah. because he has the adhikar to do that. But he's also teaching us to develop adhikar uh, for for preaching, for uh, represent, for representing, but also uh, speaking of Bhagavatam and Prabhupada's purports. Um, now I haven't been able to find you know a recorded reference of this, but um, I believe it's His Holiness Bhaktivai Baba Swami who says that Prabhupada said once. It's one of these Prabhupada says that. Um, that eventually people will write purports to my purports. Devotees will write purports to my purports. And what we're finding, one of the things we're finding in this uh, edit editorial review process, I find, is this doesn't, this becomes a necessity. There are things that Srila Prabhupada writes 
where we we feel like we have to say, wait a minute, this needs some explanation. <laughs> yeah. This needs some this needs some elaboration. This needs we don't want to change Prabhupada's words, but we want to give opportunity to understand <laughs> what uh, we may feel is uh, could easily be misunderstood. So things like yes. that. <laughs> I think that's a whole universe in itself because there are many yeah. statements that are very easily misunderstandable. So, um, yeah. Maharaj, going on to this retelling about, say, like uh, about the epics. I have been writing a series of books on the Ramayana and the Mahabharata especially, uh, maybe drawing oh. some practical lessons from these epics. So it's more like human yeah. values and some spiritual values. Yeah. So I have been looking at the spectrum of uh, literature that devotees have written and also uh, non-devotees have written on the Ramayana. Yeah. So I would like to talk about yeah. these levels and say of okay. using imagination. So say now if I at one level the very translation requires some level of imagination. Say yes. now I I have the first Mahabharata that I really read and could connect with was Krishna Dharma Prabhu's his Ramayana and Mahabharata. You know his he has a his writing has a power to bring like vivid visual imagery to the mind. Mm. And no. then I read a literal translation of the Ramayana by this Kisari Mohan Ganguly, whose Mahabharata is there in the freedom, public domain. Now that's stylized and that's almost archaic English. So yes. it's a struggle to read it, to what to speak yeah. of, uh, relish it. So it's mm. one thing is just when we put, when we say, so that's also in English, Krishna Dharma proves also in English. But then yeah. it's more, maybe say contemporary or more fluent, more natural English. So the mm. words we choose to translate itself require some level of imagination. Yeah. That's one thing. And second thing is that quite often the atmosphere that is there, that might be described to some extent, but we might create some more of the atmosphere to transport the readers. What is happening over there? So when the coronation was happening, there might be some description, but we might create a little bit more of description. So one is imagination and translation. Second is in the atmosphere. Then the third is in the, in the uh, dialogues. So I see this most often done in dramas that quite often we could make the dialogues more, whatever is given as a translation, we could make it more punchy, more memorable, yeah. uh, more rhetorical, yeah. whatever, so many ways. Then there is also the inner thought processes. Quite often, many of the, at least the Ramayana Mahabharata, many places, they don't describe the inner thought processes. Mm. And, and this, I find that as compared to a drama, in a, say, a no, there's a dramatization and there's a novelization. Dramatization means like a depiction. So novelization, yeah. I find it actually better because we can see the thought process if it's described. So the, in the thought mm. process also, there is some, to tell the thought process, there's some amount of uh, imagination. Then beyond that, there are certain actions. So that means the narrative itself is changed a little bit. 
so i find that when we go to the fifth level that's where the like the the red button starts uh, the red signal starts coming in very strongly that is somebody <laughs> yeah. is there is a popular indian author who has who sells who calls his series as rama stories or ramayan but then he says this is a complete work of fiction and he uses all the names of ram lakshman sita rao and everyone it's completely different stories there's got nothing yeah. to do with the ramayana and now that that is something which is problematic but what do you think about the earlier four levels because they can actually bring the characters more to life for us yeah i personally have no problem with this and um what i see is it just affirms the greatness of the ramayana the fact that the ramayana becomes uh like a a reservoir a wellspring from which um elaboration enrichment and so on can come um there's a recently done uh ramayana by a young woman devotee in america uh, vrinda yeah uh vrinda devi do you know hers yeah i've seen it's, her yes. uh, three volumes yes <clears throat> i haven't seen the third volume but she's excellent writer uh and she's written on a level which is accessible uh for young people and uh she goes very much into she gives a lot of attention to character uh which i find very um very relishable <laughs> yeah so so i i don't know i'm i'm i like to encourage that sort of thing uh of course there's a long tradition of this you mentioned with the ramayana specifically you probably know of the kamban ramayana yeah the tamil ramayana so um i i haven't read it directly i've read little excerpts but an example i read about of how he elaborates in the in the um valmiki ramayana the description of dasharatha traveling uh from ayodhya uh to mithila is two verses hmm. in in kamban ramayana it's i think it's over 100 verses i don't remember it's very long it's going into extensive detail about the scenery and what's going on like that yeah so and that's considered that's considered the just like in the north uh, it's the ramcharitmanas of tulsidas is more people are more familiar with that than with the classic sanskrit valmiki ramayan similarly in the south i think they're more familiar with kamban kamban ramayan yeah so in a way it's a matter of uh time that um decides <laughs> what's going to be uh taken as as useful valuable and so on 
That's interesting. Yeah. So it's a matter of time. These are two good examples, Maj, Ram, uh, say Ramcharitmanas and Kambaramayan. So now there is, uh, there are three. three and they change. Speaking, your, your last point was about making some change in the story. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, I know that um, Ramcharitmanas, uh, as I remember, he Tulsidas completely eliminates um, the banishment of Sita. Uh, the punishment of Sita, and I forget what he does with the killing of Bali, but uh, you know the things that are more difficult. <laughs> he just he just goes around them. Yeah, that's <laughs> you true. know. So, also that the idea that Ram accepts the berries that Shabari has half eaten, that is there in the Ramcharitmanas, but that's not in Valmiki. And right. also yeah. the Lakshman Rekha. There's a lot of. Yeah. Yeah, there's so, a lot of things like that. Yeah. So, is it just because, say, we could say Hinduism or whatever term we want to use was such a. Uh, it was geographically so widely spread. That there was just no possibility for any central authority to be there. That whoever wrote something and if it evoked uh, it it uh, evoked rasa in people or it people found it acceptable, then it became acceptable. Is it something like that? Overall, uh, well, yeah, we could say the ge uh, geographical spread is one factor. I think there are others. Um, the fact that um, the fact that yeah, there's no. It's not. It's not like the Abrahamic traditions um, in so many ways. <laughs> um, you know, there's the the whole idea of sampradaya is sometimes Prabhupada would speak of the chain of disciplic succession, like you just have mm. one person after another. But the other uh, image. Is in Chaitanya Charitamrita of a tree, a tree with branches and sub branches. And when you get branches and sub branches and sub sub, -sub branches, uh, you're going to get, in the course of time, different visions. Um, so that would be part of it. Um, that's, that's also a big subject. <laughs> yes, ma'am. So interestingly, what you said about different differences between these renditions, sorry, <coughs> excuse me. So initially when I wrote my Ram, I started writing my Ramayana articles, like half of the article would be a, a description of the pastime and the half would be the analysis. And initially, mm -hmm. just to avoid like imagining things, I kept the whole pastime in indirect speech. Mm -hmm. And then for one article, I made a direct speech, and it was almost like night and day the difference. The whole pastime came alive. Ah. <coughs> so then several devotees told me that I should do it in direct speech. And mm. then I started doing that. So here, 
you know what was done in the tradition it's very difficult to know why it was done and what were the limits but for us what we can do now regarding the various ramayana i think I, just can i give some example can, sorry okay yeah you can, you can well i think a solution is very simple uh, and that is in your you have some kind of an introduction in which you say i'm taking certain liberties here and this is what i'm doing and this is why i'm doing it um and especially with ramayana you can say and also this is very much the tradition uh, i'm i'm not doing something new in that sense everybody does it <laughs> uh, i'm i'm not disrespecting uh valmiki ramayana but uh in order to highlight yeah in order to highlight rasa in order to bring out something i am taking uh some i'm carefully taking some liberties so you just say up front something like that and then okay then the reader knows okay this is what what i'm getting okay yes maharaj i think that's krishna dharma pro also does that in his book and i also done that to some extent yeah and now this two examples of say ramayans published by devotees i won't use names over here cuz we are all exploring yeah so there's one devotee who did a ramayan in which uh, when say ravan so when dashrath is about to retire at that time to explain why he is retiring dashrath talks about the six anarthas and dashrath gives a exposition of how human life is ultimately meant to conquer all those anarthas and now i asked this devotee he, now there is no such description in the ramayana that dashrath gives a, like a monologue like that to anyone but yeah. he said you know i am using the ramayana to give a message and i felt that's a appropriate place to give that message but the problem mm. is that now devotees read that ramayana and in the vyasasan they say dashrath says this 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 so <laughs> then it becomes a slight problem so when <laughs> but then i suggested the devotee that Now maybe wherever you have used something which is like a product of your imagination, I saw some Christian books on say some Christian saintly characters or something like that. They say they have a they have a fact fiction index or fact imagination index where they say mm. you know this is from this source and this is a product of my imagination. But yeah. then this devotee said it will require too much work to do that. And now just I'll complete this point. There's another devotee who did a Ramayana. and for doing that uh, they portrayed as if in the kaikeyan the queens they constantly used to have tensions and they were they're quite quarrelsome and the final uh, ram being sent on exile that was just a culmination of a long long series of quarrels that were going on now at mm. least from what i have seen in the ramayana and we you hear the stories of ramayana when we were children so usually the agency or the cause of the problem is more of mantra's instigation where she is also yeah. empowered by the devtas so to show that there's a long, long history of quarrels among the queens and the queens were themselves quarrelsome and that seems it seems to go against the mood that we learned now from that devotee's yeah. perspective that devotee said i'm just giving a context to explain how such a big thing could happen 
so mm-hmm. but i found that uh, quite jarring to talk, hear about the quarrel so now where do we first of all we don't have the authority to legislate because they would be going to do what they are going to do but at yes. least <laughs> but at least some frames for thought because i don't think any devotee would consciously want to do something which is which is objectionable or wrong every devotee right. we can presume that they have good intentions but if there is some discussion and then some guidelines can emerge and then devotees can decide how much they want to follow the guidelines broadly any thoughts on this maharaj again i would go back to a culture of review i would say uh let someone who's written like the second example you've given uh if they're going to do that and they're justifying well you know this calls for some context and so on okay so then now i'm going to read this and um and i write my review in which i say you know i found this very jarring uh because and maybe you want to argue it's it's not necessary to have this in fact it spoils it for me because it was the whole um focus on mantra which you know made much more sense to me but it does raise interesting questions whatever whatever you can go on and on um so the the reviewing culture i think is that's a form of regulation um in which again you're educating uh readers educating authors and creating a culture which is let's say constructively self-critical and encouraging of uh of reflection um because again same example um part of me may want to react against uh such an approach that the that the wives were all, always <laughs> uh arguing and so on <clears throat> but then but then another side may say well there's a certain realism to that uh which i don't know for whatever reason one might argue could could be justified so so that would be one thing i think this uh a culture of uh of writing and review and another point is that back to the question what is it about uh the printed word that seems to <laughs> have some kind of special quality to it um as authors we have to be aware that we are always taking a risk because of the fact that there is this sense of uh permanence to the printed word uh someone is going to criticize someone is going to be not happy with what we write <laughs> and maybe a lot of people are not going to be happy and we have to be ready for that i mean doesn't matter what you write especially the printed page now of course the internet uh you get instant response to some things um 
but it's it's part of the the process um, which if we take it in the right way can be um, can can be nourishing uh, if criticism is given in the right spirit you know of you know genuinely wanting the best for everyone and it, if there's if there isn't false ego in the criticism it's constructive cr criticism mm -hmm. and of course uh any of us as writers we should want to have uh mentors and you know this is of course can be a one role of of guru or it can be of a particular uh another uh, colleague, another devotee, someone we can work with uh, who can be openly but constructively critical. That can be very helpful. Yeah. So you're saying it could work both ways that maybe the authors before publishing they could get it reviewed or even if they get it mm. published then if there are reviews available then readers, when they're going to read it, they will be more discerning. And then maybe authors in future rounds of publishing will become more, more, more discerning also. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Then back to Godhead, I'm one of the editors. So uh -huh. we discussed about publishing reviews of uh -huh. books. So then our chief editor mentioned that if you are for a review to be a proper review, you can't just praise, you have to praise and criticize. And he says, we don't want to criticize yeah. devotees' books. So Yeah, this is part of our problem. <laughs> How do we do this? How do we do this in a proper Vaishnav, within the scope of Vaishnav etiquette? Um, there is one uh, website. It's not an ISKCON website, but uh, one of the Godia um, groups, uh, they have... I have to say, quite a nice website, and they're including uh, on their website uh, some book reviews, which are very nicely done. Uh, I don't remember if I've seen any fierce uh, criticism of anything there, but um, yeah, maybe Back to God that is not the right place for it, but yeah. somewhere. That's true. It's managed. So, you know, I had talked with, uh, continuing this topic of imagination then. So, mm. if I understand right, uh, reviewing is the main thing that we could do at this stage and mentoring, if it's there, that's even better. Yes. Mm. So now, going forward to uh, the discussion on, say, like Natak Chandrika, I think Tamal Krishna Maharaj also wrote a book where he actually had a Prabhupada Antilila, where he had that whole Bhakti Devi and Rinda Devi and they were, how they were interacting while Prabhupada's earthly pastimes were going on. And you know, this is in, in a, almost a case of, uh, we could say transcendental characters being depicted mm -hmm. doing something which is not really described in scripture. So. Yeah. That is more for the sake of uh, building rasa. That's what he writes in his book. So that could be an example yeah. of, say, using imagination. Isn't yeah. It? And, yes. And take that example 
uh, of Tamal Krishna Goswami's um, Prabhupada's final leela. Yeah. And, and now let's imagine, since we're talking about imagination, <laughs> let's imagine a performance, a performance, a live performance of that drama uh, with uh, these, um, we may say, allegorical or otherwise uh, transcendental characters, whatever. Mm. Um, I suspect that we would very much appreciate, we would simultaneously understand, ah, this has been, you know, this is the creativity of the, the author. Um, it's, it's not in Shastra. And I suspect we would have, have no problem with it. We would feel, yes, this is really good. It, it feels right. It feels like it's... Uh, heightening the significance of, of, of what is happening. This great uh, devotee is preparing to depart from this world. Um, I would think, you know, I would think anyone who objects to it, um, I would be looking, you know, like, what is your problem? <laughs> why, why do you have a problem with it? And, and I think Srila Prabhupada would, would also appreciate. Or take, um, perhaps you've seen some of the performances of His Holiness Bhakti Mark Swami in Maya. Yeah. Who are very creative uh, and, and very, yeah, imaginative. Uh, in, in, but in ways which... Um, you really feel it draws out uh, characters, it draws out uh, the drama, it draws out the rasa. And I, I think this, we want more of this. Prabhupada said, um, and I think we can find the reference for this, if we looked, um, that, uh, how was it? <clears throat> by cultural conquest, this movement will spread. He used that expression, I think, cultural conquest. Uh, and I also, also re always remember uh, one devotee who uh, had been, been present in New York, not at 26 Second Avenue, but at the next temple. It was Henry Street in um, in the um, New York area. And uh, he was saying that in those days, they would, every Sunday feast, they would have a short skit, a short drama. Uh, typically, it was something based on something Srila Prabhupada had said in a lecture. It would be, the boatman and the professor, or it would be the fish out of water, you know, something like that. And I should turn this off. Um, excuse me. Yeah. These little skits, you know, or, or some of the uh, stories that Bhakti Siddhanta Thakur would tell, 
to illustrate something about Krishna consciousness. And they would kind of throw together, they wouldn't spend a lot of time to do it, uh, to prepare, but they would put on this skit um, for the Sunday feast. And this devotee was saying the temple was packed every Sunday because this was the highlight <laughs> of the week. This was, uh, people loved it. And I've often said, um, I've often encouraged devotees, what often prevents us from doing these Sunday feast dramas is we think, oh, it takes too much time to prepare. But it doesn't have to take any time to prepare if we do it in the format of what's called a radio play in the West. The radio play means everybody is holding a script and reading from the script. You don't have to memorize anything. Okay. Then but you read dramatically. <laughs> and maybe you act act out. Okay. Maybe you act out some, some things. Uh, it depends what is, uh, what it, what it, particular thing is but you can you can make adjustments um, there can be a lot of improvisation uh, and and a lot of drama is very much about imagination because you're asking the uh, audience to imagine the scenery to imagine uh, so many things yeah you don't need costumes you don't need anything you need all you need is the script the parts maybe you have maybe you do one practice before you read through it so nobody's stumbling through the text and you maybe emphasize no when you sit, when this comes then you should really uh you know speak more forcefully like that that's interesting a lot of points there maharaj uh, firstly about uh, this cultural conquest which you mentioned, and I have seen mm. there are two distinct readings of this within our yeah. movement. One is that cultural conquest means that it's all over the world, people will adopt Indian or Vedic culture, and that's how we will conquer. So, and the other understanding is that, uh, that the, through the bhakti culture, as uh, presented in or rather bhakti being presented in culturally appealing ways will yeah. attract people and transform and they will they will be transformed so yeah that second one is my understanding oh okay because if you say we're going to get everybody uh, adopting indian culture um i mean good luck it's not happening <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You know, it's interesting that uh, you know, I've seen some devotees feel that, say, the culture is in fact the biggest obstacle for people to come to Krishna. But then, yeah. usually, when we try to impose the culture on them, but mm. as a matter of curiosity, people are interested in the culture. See, yeah, some curiosity. Yeah. But what you're talking about, cultural presentations, not so much like cultural imposition but more of right. presenting through culture. Yeah, and that makes historical sense also. 
because throughout india the bhakti culture spread through the vernacularization of the tradition and in a exactly. sense that was the local local you could say the various parts like the maharashtra tamil nadu bengal whichever they took yeah. ownership of the culture and translated it in their own language and depicted it in their own ways exactly that's that's and and then it took root in the local culture mm-hmm. and this our our movement is very much about spreading we're spreading 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 and that's good that's important you know every town and village but once we get to a town and a village we want it to also take root <laughs> otherwise you know it's going to be like tumbleweeds when the wind blows another something else culturally interesting comes along <laughs> then then what happens <laughs> and uh, so for taking root uh, what do you think what all are required that people should feel express it in their own way or what all does taking root require it's it takes one thing it takes is uh, an openness to the existing culture and an appreciation of whatever is valuable in that culture um i think we make a mistake of course we know uh famously mahatma gandhi when he was asked in london what do you think of western civilization he said it would be a good idea <laughs> you <know>? yeah <laughs> but you know okay that's a nice quip but there are aspects of western civilization which i wouldn't throw out with the bath water um yeah i think uh, there's there's a lot there that is valuable and and if we look again historically the spread of um buddhism in china for example hmm. over centuries uh involves um integrating so much of what was the original buddhism and some of course will argue that it ended up being something completely different um okay but i would say there are recognizable aspects of buddhism chinese buddhism uh con- connecting with earlier theravada buddhism um anyway that's just one example that there was some kind of integration some sort of responding uh to the local culture and again this took centuries it involved also huge uh challenges with regard to translation how do we translate uh these concepts into into chinese language so and that go- comes back to the whole issue of editing prophet's books uh people are very i just want uh, concer- yeah what do you go to that if i just you know this point about uh, taking good from the existing culture that's something which you know, i grew up in india and especially after we became after we started practicing krishna bhakti there was a culture of bashing western culture 
and that right. was a prominent part of our preaching also but yeah. after last last maybe last 5 6 years i have been traveling abroad and uh, you know I, it struck me in a major way that the western culture is not a monolith and yeah. what what we call in the western culture also there was there is a religious or even a spiritual aspect to it for quite some time so mm. nowadays i try to speak more in terms of say materialistic culture and spiritual culture rather than indian and western so right. so this intolerance toward the uh, culture or intolerance or disrespect or dismissiveness uh, towards the culture which is there which we seem to have quite a bit and that also leads to suppression or neglect of cultural like contemporary cultural expressions Now, where do you think this comes from is it just our uh, like a new converts new uh, zeal neophyte enthusiasm because of which it came <laughs> or is it uh, what are your thoughts about that yeah um it's a kind of cultural chauvinism um <laughs> which i think in part at least and a very big part mm-hmm. is uh, a reaction and a very understandable reaction uh to uh the imperialist uh political uh and cultural situation in india um you know the dominance of of europe uh in india in the last 200 years especially uh there's now a big reaction to that and that's understandable but as i said it easily becomes throwing of throwing of babies out with bathwater yeah. <laughs> and that's i think very unfortunate and has really the counter effect of what we want um we want to spread krishna consciousness we don't want to spread um hindu we we're not probably was not interested in hinduism hmm. um he he was interested in krishna consciousness and he understood and because he had such a clear understanding uh of this distinction i think because of this he was successful uh in his mission more than others who tried and failed despite the fact that he actually did bring so much of the um you know cultural visual aspect with him <laughs> yeah more than so many of the others he he brought with him uh the dress and and the food and so on yeah that's what i so was thinking when you said this that at a intellectual or ideological level prabhupada distanced himself from in, in hinduism quite strongly and yet prabhupada we could say brought a very specific form of uh, hindu culture we could say bengali 19th century culture to the west so yeah. so um so you are saying that prabhupada was successful because he d- he didn't impose that or he was he was able to adjust or i mean what what because if he's bringing cultural specifics then what what is the point you're making exactly um he yes he, 
as you said, he didn't impose anything. In fact, I remember when I first joined the devotees in Germany in 1972, um, <laughs> I don't know how it became the practice, but it was the standard, speaking of dress, that all the men, brahmacharis, householders, we all were wearing uh, the uttariya of the sannyasi. <laughs> okay. That's interesting. Okay. Because Prabhupada was wearing it, we're also wearing it, so it was imitation. And but my point is that he, I think he saw that. Whoops, you lost light now. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I should come back in a minute or two. <laughs> yeah. um, sorry. I think Prabhupada saw that, but he, ne he never said anything like, no, no, this is wrong. He, he just wanted to encourage everyone. Okay, you're going to imitate like this, whatever. <laughs> Of course, he was then, at some point, he became very strict on certain things, like, you know, the men should all have a shaved head and so on. I think also Prabhupada was uh, exploring what works, what doesn't work. And of course, in the very beginning, 26 Second Avenue, he wasn't telling anyone, shave your head. Oh. He just wanted to get everyone to chant Hare Krishna, to take prasadam. Mm. Um, yeah. So what am I saying? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but uh, Prabhupada had, he was not a missionary for Hinduism. That I'm very, I'm very sure of. And I make that point in my book on uh, cow care. Yes. Is that he never said, uh, you know, Indian deshi cows are are the only cows, and uh, the Western breeds are not really cows. He never said that. He wanted everyone uh, to do cow protection with whatever the local cows are. Mm. You know? So, That's... Uh, so, mm. Just one or two last questions, Maharaj. I hope, how much time? Yes. You have? Okay, thank you. So now there is one genre which I have seen, uh, which is pop quite popular in Christianity. That is, they call it Christian fiction. And some of it is just mm. Christian people interacting and it's mostly centered on relationships and uh, how Christianity helps people to deal with life challenges. But they also have mm. Christian historical fiction where they have imaginative retellings of the characters of, of the lives of Christian saints. And that keeps things alive. So that means that makes those characters come alive for people today. So is there any mm -hmm. tradition of bhakti fiction that you are aware of? Of course, I don't think within ISKCON we have anything, but within the broader bhakti tradition or Gaudiya tradition, say, there's Jaiva Dharma, Bhaktivinoda Thakur's. Of course, that book is very much, um, it's a kind of presentation of what Roman Catholic Christians would call the catechism. Uh, yeah. But it's, it's 
done as as a kind of narrative. Um, and then uh, this other sh shorter book of his, uh, what is it called? Prema Pradeep. Prema Pradeep is yeah. done as, in a similar way. And I think he was inspired by mm, Bankim Chandra Chatterjee. <laughs> Anand Mat or okay. Yeah, whatever, whatever yeah. it was. Um, okay. There was uh, many years ago. I don't remember the name. It was an Iskand devotee who wrote a novel, which I found very, very well done. Uh, it was called, what was it called? Uh, the uh, something like the life of the Vaishnav sages, and it was historic. It was historical novel. It was taking place sometime after uh, Lord Chaitanya, and it was something in South India. And I thought it was very well done. Uh, there's another book, and I don't remember the title of this, that's been done in German language some years ago, uh, which goes back to mm, a few thousand years, like if I remember it was a thousand years after the age of Kali begins, something like that. Yeah, I remember now. It was called Kali Kompt. Kali is coming. Okay. And I didn't read the whole thing. It was quite a long novel, but uh, also I found it very good. <laughs> so, I don't know. I think anything we can do to... Uh, oh, and also we have one... <laughs> I like to tell... We have one devotee in Finland... Hmm. who writes, he's written at least 10 novels in Finnish language, so I can't tell you anything about the quality uh, or what the content, but he tells me uh, that he's weaving into these, he, he does different genres, sort of mystery, uh, adventure, historical novel, but he's always weaving in ideas um, of Krishna consciousness. Yeah. And he, he writes the novel, he publishes the novel himself. Okay. Sorry. And he, go, and he goes out on the street and sells the novel. <laughs> oh, that's very resourceful. Huh? So he's like... And in this way, he is maintaining his griha. <laughs> He's doing the whole thing himself. He's writing, publishing, and going out and distributing himself. That's amazing. Actually, to maintain, yeah. a, maintain a livelihood through writing is, is not easy unless one does really reasonably well through the books. Yeah, that's inspiring. Maharaj, with respect to bhakti fiction, I thought of three different categories again. One mm. is, say, we have non-historical characters. And we have non-historical non storylines in which we bring in some even bhakti philosophy. I think mm. nobody's going to object to that. But then that's, that's as long as the philosophy is reasonably accurately presented, that should be fine. And then other is mm -hmm. we have non-historical characters in say historical settings. So mm. that means we create a character 
which who say is that present at the time of chaitanya mahaprabhu or at the time of krishna and tell something yeah. from his so i think something similar to what you recommend in the swaran series and the third mm. is say like we could say historical characters in non historical settings that means uh, mm. we see there are some stories which are like that there is a story for example prabhupad says of a person tried to evade death and he covered himself with uh, human refuse excreta and then yamaraj came as a hog licked him clean and then took him away now whether actually yamaraj did like that and uh, you know it's it's open to question but there seems to be there are some stories of narad muni doing some funny things i heard a story once of a person who was chanting the name of who had no time to change chant the name of ram and then a saint told him look at his schedule he said you have no time okay so chant in the washroom and he was chanting in the washroom and hanuman heard the names being chanted hanuman came there and he got angry and hanuman went into the washroom and slapped this person on the face how dare you chant ram's sacred name in the washroom and then hanuman went to ayodhya and met ram and ram was holding his face says why are you holding this it's in the slap had gone on ram's face because he said i was in his bout and hanuman felt embarrassed now i don't know whether this story is given anywhere in the scripture so in some ways are all three you would say acceptable if they serve a right purpose yeah if they serve a purpose there i think they they all serve a purpose <laughs> <laughs> and and there will whether or not we like it there will be uh there will be these kind of uh expressions because there is this impulse uh to um it's it's our it's our human impulse something has to come out so i think this will be there whether or not someone likes it or not um and then then it's a matter of time what survives and how it survives and then you just uh okay. it it's time becomes the judge that's interesting yeah so time means enduring interest or it it has some enduring impact so people preserve it and follow it and pass it on yeah mm. yeah that's interesting from uh from again uh part pardon referring to the scholarly perspective but uh i once uh um took a course where the the subject was um was sacred scripture as this concept of being sacred what makes a scripture a scripture uh what makes it canonical what makes it authoritative so again it's the from the outside of the bottle but the basic idea was uh a scripture always belongs to a community take away the community and you no longer have a a a, a scripture you know no longer have um an authoritative text so it's it's always situated within a community 
So this is, we could apply so, this for, especially those which are not considered revelations in our tradition. So whether they, yeah. they may never become canonical, but at least they may, if they are accepted and if a community accepts them, then they'll continue. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So rather than trying to legislate or police this, like I like the way you explain the review. You know, I found it jarring rather than saying this is a deviation. So yeah. we present it from more from a perspective of uh, not a judgment about fidelity to tradition, but of its effect on us. Then that would be yeah. That's the best way to move forward rather than trying to legislate, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think legislation is, um, in our modern world, this is very problematic. Yeah. <laughs> the less legislation, the better. <laughs> yes, Maharaj. And in one sense, that's how creativity will thrive. Otherwise, if you're constantly looking over our shoulders, yeah. otherwise we can't thrive. Yeah, if, if we want to have, you know, like Soviet-Russia uh, situation where the uh, the creative impulses are, you know, very carefully controlled. And if you write, if you write the wrong thing, you end up in prison. You know, <laughs> that's not going to work. <laughs> that's that's a very, uh, you could say, a very powerful note to to sort of, uh, I mean, conclude this uh, discussion on creativity. It's a very Mm. We, we, we don't want to legislate and if we can curb all artistic expression and bhakti is actually flourished because of the artistic expressions of devotees throughout the generations. Yes, yes. And, you know, to get it back to, okay, am, am I saying kind of forget about tradition? No, I'm saying let's keep that, let's keep the direction of the guidance of Sadhu, Shastra, and Guru. We have those as our guides. Sadhu, Shastra, Guru, Vakya, Hridoye, Koryo, Aikya. And, uh, but then when that uh, becomes an inspiration in the heart, how does that inspiration come out? Um, let, let it be expressed as genuinely coming from the heart and and then it becomes authentic kirtan and then it becomes authentic sankirtan and what we want is authenticity so you are saying authenticity is not necessarily so just just fidelity to the tradition but authenticity is in a sense the effect of the tradition on our heart then expressed through us. Yes. Otherwise, if we're only um, if we're only becoming parrots of the tradition, then we're actually losing the tradition. The tradition becomes um, a, uh, an artifact, a museum artifact. A living tradition means. Uh, real people are experiencing, are renewing the tradition. You know, again, Srila Prabhupada, how many times he said, I'm simply repeating what my spiritual master said. But where will you find 
you'll find very little in Srila Prabhupada's writing, which is word for word what Srila Bhaktisiddhanta Thakur wrote or said. Because Prabhupada is writing, speaking his own language, which is, that's what we want. We want his realized, you know, what is coming from his lotus mouth. <laughs> it's not just repetition, even though he says, I'm just repeating. In, a, in, a, in some sense, he is, and in an important sense, he's not. He's not just repeating. So Prabhupada is using the word repeating in a somewhat different sense from what we might yeah. consider literal meaning of the word repeating. Yeah, yeah he's obviously taking the message uh, and he's not compromising the message. So in that sense, he's certainly repeating. Uh, but it's not, it's not like a parrot. Yeah. Parroting will make us a, simply like a museum artifact. That's, that's quite yeah. graphic also to think about it. Yes. Well, and then you can put everything into some glass case, you know, and you can look at it from the outside and uh, you can have a label, and, you know, oh, this is what they were doing um, back in the early 21st century. Very interesting. What else is new? <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, there was what else is new. It just struck me that echoes with your point of renewing the tradition. So, yeah, in a sense, we we need to when we experience it and when we articulate it. It's not just that we are when you use the word renew. In what sense are you using it? That it's a new expression or it's a new experience or a, what? What do you mean by renewing? Uh it's it's. Um, or keeping alive simply. I meaning. think Prabhupada. I think Prabhupada used the expression "old wine and new bottles." Yeah. Old, old, um, which is a, it's a Christian thing actually. Yeah. Um, that um, renewal is what is it exactly? There's there's revival. Uh, which Shila, which uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is doing, for example, when he sends uh, the Goswamis to Vrindavan, they're uh, excavating the uh, the holy places of Vrindavan. So that's a kind of it's a kind of uh, revival, you can say. Hmm. Uh, and then renewal, it may mean a lot of things. It can mean bringing in uh, uh, a, a new expression of language, a use of language. As you were saying, the whole bhakti tradition in India was established through vernacular languages. So that's a process of renewal, you can say. It's renewal and it's also an expansion uh, to reach uh, more people. Um, what else? I don't know. There can be so many aspects of renewal. But what I wanted to say is uh, the, the getting back to holding on to tradition, the guru's duty is twofold. Uh, the, duty, uh, the guru's duty 
is to uh, maintain tradition, to represent tradition, and simultaneously to innovate in order to make tradition uh, accessible to newer, to new audiences. Now the guru has to, has to be innovative, I would say. Yes. One way or another. I think Prabhupada says in the Nodi lectures that this Krishna consciousness movement has been practically invented by me. And he says that in the context of if the spiritual master has to think of ways and means to get the disciples. Yes, that's the Krishna. Thinking of ways and means. And on the other side, he would say, this is not stereotyped. It is not a stereotype process. Yeah. Yeah, this is a so in a sense if some devotees are culturally say using creativity they're actually following the tradition although they might be giving some new expression but they're in a sense following yeah. a very vibrant tradition that's very reassuring and encouraging yeah, yeah well uh you know you can look at the whole story of chaitanya mahaprabhu's travel uh preaching uh, it's it's all. I think we could argue it's all. Um, he's being innovative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. He uses different strategies at different places, meets with different people, talks in different ways. Yeah, that's quite yeah. a striking way of looking at it. Yes, Maharaj. Uh, can I sum try to summarize and then if you have okay words. Yes, all right. So, Maharaj, we discussed about the topic of using our imagination, Krishna's service. And then you mentioned about the Krishna Smaranam. Devotees were blank, but when you give an example of what were the thoughts of, a, of say, the Brahman going from Rukmini to Krishna, then that triggered the imagination. And then we discussed even yeah, our yeah. tradition. There is, there is Gopal, the Gopal Champu, Anandavan Champu, which has a distinctive shift, especially in how Radharani's compassionate nature is being portrayed. And then there are dramas which are written yeah. according to very strict, uh, strict uh, uh, rules and uh, dramaturgy principles. And um, also you quoted that there is a, the Lord Chaitanya's led to a of expansion of literary expression. So being a Kavi is very much a part of our tradition. And uh, historically also Bhakti has spread that way across India and there are various Rama retellings, uh, Ramayan retellings and the retellings are often more popular in North and South India than the Sanskrit epic also. And then we discussed about uh, boundaries. So from Chaitanya itself, you said that Sarudamodar Goswami is trying to uh, stopping something which had wrong Siddhanta, wrong Rasa that could be seen as a representative of the reviewing process. And rather than trying to legislate and decide which books can be published or not, but if we could create a reviewing culture by which the authors become more discerning and then readers also become more dis discerning, then that would be helpful. And then there have been cultural, there are already quite a diverse cultural, creative cultural expressions in, in art, in music, in architecture. 
and in words in writing because it's more authoritative more you could say uh, unchangeable or it's for forever there so there is more gravity and more concern about it and uh, we will we we will not be able to legislate it in today's age but if devotees also have mentors and they take feedback when they are doing this then we could continue this tradition cultural and actually this vital like dramas you said they are there is clear fiction but it is creativity which has a pleasing effect and even tamal krishna maharaj's book so when prabhupad said culture, cultural conquest will share krishna bhakti what that means is not that people will necessarily adopt a indian culture but through their contemporary cultural expressions of bhakti people will become attracted and that will require some respect for the existing culture and appropriate presentation accordingly and then lastly we talked about how tradition itself is the spiritual master has to have some amount of innovation to be so the renewal of the tradition means that there is experience of krishna and then there is a expression of krishna by the living individual so that's authenticity not just fidelity to tradition not just like a parrot like repetition but sharing one's own experience so and if we don't do that we will become like a museum piece but if we do that then our tradition will be renewed and will expanded any anything i missed out or any concluding words you would like to say maharaj that's a very nice summary if you like um i could now read uh this little piece that i wrote uh in this book uh of krishna smarna shall i read it please please maharaj yes. it's about the brahman from vidarbha yes please <clears throat> a brahman has been dispatched by rukmini to dwaraka to inform lord krishna of her desire to marry him that's in brackets quote is it so is it true do i now enter the glorious city of gates dwaraka do i stand before the grand palace of lord krishna then why do i hesitate to enter am i not the brahmans am i not the brahmans sent by my lady the glowing sapphire princess vidarbhi do i not carry her urgent message her call for help her plea for rescue her bid for marriage and why is it i i why is it i whom she has sent on this cru- crucial mission was it fate that led me yesterday to join in the vedic chanting at her daily yagya was it planned from above that she would notice me sending her maid to fetch me to her private garden on the plea of an astrological reading from me and did i not hear patiently her missive of dangerous intent her detailed instruction how the lord of her life may give all opposition the slip and whisk her away and why is it i who finds himself here amidst the lord's eternal associates was it not the prediction of the astrologer at the time of my birth as my mother would always remind me years later that one day i would see lord krishna face to face and speak with him 
Have I not longed throughout my days to know when and how this would come about, imagining in every possible and impossible way the circumstances and the words I would speak? So why, at this long-awaited moment, do I hesitate? What holds me from approaching the guards? Indeed, what will I tell them? Would it be not right for me as a Brahmin to tell the truth? <clears throat> that I carry a message from my princess, the dark-eyed Vaidarti? But would that not spoil everything, letting loose a flood of rumors that could reach too soon the ears of my lady's dreaded intended recipient of her hand, Shishupal? And upon finally seeing my lord, the sinajur of the Vrishnis, the full moon of Dvaraka, will I not be so dumbstruck that I will forget everything, who I am, where I am from, what is my purpose? And horror of horrors, if it is as they say that Lord Krishna honors the Brahmins, what if he honors this poor fellow right in front of his courtiers, even massaging my feet? Will I not be like a duck among swans, a jackal among lions, a meteor among the stars and moon? Should I hide my Brahmin thread and come as a Vaisha or Shudra, saying some story to explain? But is this not foolishness to think Krishna will not know my identity? And for that matter, will he not also already know the content of the message I carry, being the all-knowing Lord of all? then why indeed should I enter, simply making a disturbance when the Lord has more important matters to attend to? Oh, but what is happening now? Are these Dvarakavasis who pass me by as I stand hesitating, eyeing me curiously, wondering what is this strange Brahman? Will they not at any moment approach and ask me who I am, what it is I want? What will I tell them? And look, is it not the Abhijit Muhurta, the high noon moment of victory, the time to commence with important business? And does not Lord Krishna reassure, Ahang Tong Sarvapape Byo Mokshai Shami Mahasucha? Is there anything other than foolishness that makes me hesitate? Then let me act now. Guards, do be so kind. I come from distant lands with a message for Lord Krishna, bringing him gladness and thus great joy to Dvaraka and the, the world. And then the guards speak and say, do be most welcome and enter. We happily bring you before our glorious Lord, the primeval supreme person, please enter. That's so vivid, so engaging. It's, you actually feel the turmoil and the anxiety and the emotion in the heart of the Brahmin and few <laughs> things can actually absorb the heart in the pastime. Just narrating the pastime would not do this as much as uh, telling it from a first person narrative. Thank you Maharaj for sharing that. I think that beautifully illustrates what is the purpose of using the imagination Krishna's service to actually increase the remembrance <laughs> of Krishna, increase the attraction to Krishna, increase the emotional connect with Krishna's pastimes. Thank you. Is this available? Is this particular passage available online Maharaj somewhere or it's a part of the book? 
it's in the book. Uh, the book is available on Kindle uh, for free, free download. Uh, if you search Krishna Smarana, uh, yes. you'll find. Yes. And um, and uh, also this Gorasmarna. Now, if you search my name within Kindle, just Krishna Kshetra, as two uh, words, K-R-I-S-H-N-A-K-S-H-E-T-R-A, you'll also find a couple of other books, or three other books, uh, which I have written over the years. One is my, one was my master's thesis. <laughs> That's the theology of Dita uh, one is called From All Angles of Vision. Uh, so uh, another book is called In Praise of My Preceptor. Oh. See Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. It's just, uh, it's mainly some of my... Um, Vyasa Puja offerings over the years, and uh, but also two or three. I I wrote some sh short dramas on Srila Prabhupada's life. Those are included. Oh, okay. Thank you, Maharaj, for your time, your sharing your wisdom, and I hope that more and more devotees can relish your wisdom as well as your creativity in Krishna's service. Thank you for your association. <laughs> Humble obeisances. It's been a Jai, Shri Prabhupada Ki Jai. Thank you, Maharaj. Humble basis. Thank you, Maharaj.